everybody. Initially, when I started this podcast, I said I was going to do 10 interviews with 10 well-known Memphis leaders to provide a platform where any listener can learn how others have learned how to handle setbacks or unexpected challenges throughout their own life and careers. This podcast has been an absolute blast, and I'm looking forward to keep pressing on with it. Next week, I have some exciting news to share. This week, I'm going to re-release one of our most downloaded episodes with singer-songwriter Drew Holcomb. Drew lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and is a singer-songwriter and entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And as always, if you like the episode, please leave a review and share it with your friends. We also have an email newsletter list that you can sign up for. I look forward to releasing next week's episode and some exciting news about the podcast. Have a great day. This episode is brought to you by Matt Haga with State Farm Insurance. We all know the things that you rely on the most with your auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance is understanding exactly what you're getting for a competitive price. If you're looking for an agency that is prompt with their service and that will take care of you, then you need to go to matthaga.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-A-A-G-A and contact them. Matt Haga State Farm is licensed to provide coverages in Tennessee and Mississippi. We do have listeners to this podcast from all over the world, so please make sure that this offer is just for the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Thanks for listening, and now we're going to get back to the show. Scott Haven from the Avery Brothers is a friend of mine. We were talking about the same thing, and he said, you know, you can only be the best Drew Holcomb out there. You know, he said, I can only be the best Scott Avon. I can't, I'm not going to be Bob Dylan. I'm not going to be somebody else. You know, and those are, I think, good words to live by. You know, it's uh, when you're trying to achieve being somebody else or you've put someone else on a pedestal of what's like the greatest person in the role that you're trying to fill, you're destined for failure because whatever version you have of that person is, is mostly mythology anyways. You know, no one knows what it's like to be somebody until, unless you are that somebody. Drew, good morning, man. Thanks for coming on my podcast. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Man, I'm just going to kind of get right to it. I've heard you talk about when you were studying abroad in Scotland and you were kind of affirmed through your friends and some people that you were close with that you were great at playing the guitar and singing and being an artist. So then you started to wrestle about really you know, what does it look like to go after it? And you talked about your old Volvo having 300,000 miles on it, talked about having no student debt, but just kind of really going after it. How would you talk about that to people that may have a dream or may have a desire and they're stuck and they're thinking about all the reasons why it can't work or why they shouldn't do it? Just generally, how do you kind of approach that topic or that question? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I do get asked that a lot. You know, I think anytime someone sort of, attempts and then, you know, eventually achieves some sort of level of success pursuing a career in the creative space um, or in the entrepreneurial space. I I think those two things are sort of similar. People want to know, like, how did you do it? What are your, you know, I want to do something like that, but I've got all these hiccups, you know, and I would say, 
the one thing I always say to everybody is like, you know, everybody's situation and story is different. So there's not some like seven step book on how to like make your dreams come true. You know, I was in a situation where I, I, I was on scholarship at the UT. And so I did graduate with sort of a clean financial slate. So I didn't have a lot of expenses and I could live on very little. And I got, you know, some, I was sort of hustling for the, for the work. And so I was playing like crappy bar gigs, making, you know, 150 bucks twice a week working at a studio to try to learn the craft. So I was able to kind of put myself in position to, to grind, to, you know, and sometimes I'll meet like somebody who's in their mid thirties. That's like regretting not trying music, you know, and they have a mortgage and three kids. And it's like certainly a lot more, a lot different at that point because you can't go spend 200 days on the year on the road, you know, when you've got, you know, three kids and a, and a family mouths to feed. So a lot of it, I think, is about timing for me. I, I, I was able to sort of go for it at a very young age when the stakes were were quite a bit lower. Now, that being said, like the stakes are still high for me. I mean, we were, we're in a season where musicians basically, we just got the rug pulled out from under us like a lot of people have. What we're hearing is music, you know, live music is going to be the last thing to sort of get the green light, you know. And so I've had to hustle more in the last four months than I've hustled the last four years combined. Not even four months. It's only been three months, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. So I do think that people have this sort of thought that if in order to pursue their dream, they have to make like a like an either or choice. And I always tell people like, you know, start doing it on the side. Like the side hustle thing is like where I where I try to point people, you know. And if it's working, then you'll know. Like I have a good friend who started, he was a in um medical equipment sales. And he really loved uh, like woodworking carpentry and he started buying barn wood on the side, storing it in his garage and selling it out of his truck after hours. And the next thing you know, he was spending like 25, 30 hours a week on it and turning down calls. And it's like, okay, that's your, that's your, <laughs> that's your green light, you know? Yeah. It's, it's still a big step. Um, but I think for me, it was just a, a matter of why not. And the timing was right. And I had the the sort of ambition and the drive to, to go after it. And I had people in my corner saying, yeah, why not? Including my parents and good friends. Yeah. I think, you know, anybody that knows your dad, and I know you've talked about your mom and your dad, but I just think about your dad specifically just because of conversations, but he is just so honest about his own experiences and his own entrepreneurial journey, but he kind of draws out the best out of you. And then he just is so encouraging and kind of asking about the questions, you know, why not? And I think in just kind of a, you know, where skepticism and criticism or limited beliefs, however you want to call it, is just so common. Can you say anything maybe about the importance of your upbringing and, and then that security or that confidence or like when you talked about your parents, you know, buying you the best guitar they could afford and sending you on your way? Yeah. I mean, the most influential thing in my youth besides sort of standard family experience was, you know, I had a brother named Jay who was in a wheelchair at Spina Bifida. And so at a pretty young age, I sort of learned that the world was not sort of centered around me and that the idea of cooperation and, and, and service and sacrifice was sort of a necessary tool in order to survive our particular reality. And so that gave me a lot of confidence once I sort of grew out of you know, even sort of later years of high school, I became pretty independent and I saw my parents sort of strap on this, this, you know, unasked for task of taking care of a kid who 
required pretty much nonstop care and five or six, you know, doctor visits a week. And, you know, that's not like they didn't sign up for that, you know, um, but they did it with, with quite a bit of joy and then also figured out how to continue to do the things they loved in the middle of that. Wow. And also grew up five doors down the street from my grandfather, who was a surgeon and he loved, he like, he was sort of a work hard, play hard kind of guy. And I would say that probably, you know, five days a week, he rotated his, his work schedule such that three days a week, he would go in at 5 a.m. and, and, and get off at 1.30 and then either go play golf or tennis or go fishing. And then in the winter, he would do it the other way around and he would, he would go duck hunting and he would work from like 11 to 7. And so, you know, just those 5 a.m. calls, you know, as a doctor, people always want to get in to see him. And he's like, hey, if you really need to see me, come in at 5.30, I'll be there, you know. In, <laughs> and in then the it morning. made him look good. It made him look good, but then he got his time. And so I, I just saw from both my dad and my grandfather, uh, this sort of the hustle to, to both pursue the thing you love and, and, but also to work hard and do the, do the things that, that are not necessarily the most fun parts of being an adult. And so, you know, as a, as a kid, you just, you're sort of keen to like pick up on, on what's going on around you. And, and I think those, those are sort of the two major influences for me was, you know, you don't always get to choose your reality and you have to do the best you can with it, but that doesn't mean you have to be sort of stuck in, in pity, but also both of them were, and my mom especially, were really great at seeing people, you know, taking care of people and, and, and not sort of, there's just not a lot of, even though I grew up privileged, there was not a lot of uh, patience for acting privileged, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. You know? It was like you you better be aware that that you're privileged and be grateful for it and and actually, you know, work hard to earn that even though you, you sort of live inside of it. Right. Yesterday I was listening to you talk about, you know, early on how four to five years it was such a scrap when you started. And specifically you were talking about playing at community colleges and it sucked <laughs> because <laughs> Sucks I mean, so bad. <laughs> you gave that one story of like people putting in headphones and listening to other people's music while you were playing. Yeah. And now you're almost 20 years in, 17, 18, whatever that's at exactly. And, you know, Google your name and it's not going to take long to understand what you've accomplished thus far, but also how you, you use your platform in a very authentic way and just lots of different things that you're involved in, et cetera. But Reading about the beginning, I think, is one of the most encouraging things because I think to what you talked about also already on this podcast is we we all have interests. We're all, I mean, I would just say, you know, we're all uniquely made. So we all have certain things we kind of gravitate towards. And I think really kind of just reading about your story is just another example of maybe how to connect the dots in our own life. But I'm curious what kind of gave you the thick skin that you've talked about, <laughs> you know, when you were jamming out of those community colleges, you know, using the income to keep rolling forward, but just dealing with that much, you know, either just awkwardness or rejection or not even rejection, but just <laughs> not total, ideal. Total situation. apathy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Total yeah. apathy. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I honestly, looking back on it, if you made me do it again, I don't know if I could, so I don't know how, how much thick skin I, <laughs> I had or just, just, or just, you know, youthful ignorance, but you know, I was pretty centered as far as uh, I had, I've always had really good friends. I've always sort of had a pretty active community of faith and then my family's been pretty supportive. So I had sort of a, a recurring faucet of, 
affirmation of just who I am as a person, not just who I am as a musician, like the, you know, the music could go away. You know, I could, I could get my hand cut off in an accident or lose my voice and not be able to play music or write music anymore. And that wouldn't change the fact that, you know, I'm a uniquely made person who has value and has place in this world. So, you know, that gave me a lot of confidence. You know, it's funny. I also meet musicians on the other side of the fence who what gives them that thick skin is their desire to prove themselves to the to the doubters, you know, and that's also a motivating factor for a lot of people. I mean, that was part of my story. I think anyone who's trying something hard is going to have people chirping in their ears saying like, well, you know, you're not really going to make it or, you know, I mean, I've, I've even still probably not as often. I mean, definitely not very often anymore, but I still get questions sometimes of like, well, how long are you going to do this? You know? And I, I'm kind of like, well, I don't know. How long are you going to be a, be a plumber? You know, it's like, how long are you going to be an accountant? Like, I don't know. It's like, this is, this is what I do. I, I make a good living at it. You know, it's, I don't know. So I had, but there's obviously the beginning, there was so much more of that. It was like, Oh, that's cute. You're going to do the music thing, you know? And, and it, it does, it sort of like, you know, it, I think it, that's a driving thing for a lot of people is to sort of like you as a 25 year old, what do you want to do more than hardly anything is to prove yourself to the world, you know? Yeah. So that was certainly a motivating factor for me too. Although I would say more often than not, I was trying to prove it to myself more than I was trying to prove to other people. But also there were, there were so many, even in the hard parts of all that, I was getting to do a lot of really cool things. I was getting to travel all over the place, man. I'm playing a community college. It's literally terrible by, you know, in the afternoon, but then the next day I've got a day off and I'm downtown Chicago and I'm walking around going to museums or going to the park and reading or meeting up with an old friend. So I've always been sort of a wanderer and this particular job is a great job for somebody who has sort of, you know, has, has wanderlust and wants to see as much of the world as possible. So everything is always sort of risk reward, gain loss. And I just, I never got to this point where like the losses were more than the gains. And it was sometimes just enough to keep going both financially and sort of emotionally, psychologically. But, and then once I, once I convinced Ellie to marry me, I had pretty thick skin because of her constant rejection as well. <laughs> <laughs> so once, you know, once I convinced her to marry me, I was like, well, I, if I can convince her to marry me, I can definitely make a living making music. <laughs> Dude, I, I respect your persistence uh, just from what I've heard about Ellie. I mean, I think about my own life and I was persistent with my wife now, Annie, but there was definitely a lot of times early on where I wanted to go out with some girl and she did not want to go out with me. So I was just like, man, I don't want to get embarrassed or like, I don't want to, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to lose. So I'm just not, not going to do it. Yeah. yeah. And like to hear, I feel like, I don't know, just, you know, hearing it through Sam or whoever, just hearing how persistent you were at such, you know, an early age, that's like, yeah. and that takes some self-confidence and that takes, well, I had some, I always had a little bit of a crash and burn personality, you know? Yeah. So not quite to the degree my brother does, but. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I know you've talked about your bandmates and they've been with you from the start, uh, two out of the three, from what I read. That kind of longevity, I think, is unusual. Like with any band organization, your band, your platform has evolved and you've diversified to so much. How can you talk about it to where you've been able to still be real and authentic. I mean, you talk about healthy conflict. 
you talk about mistakes, et cetera, but you've maintained just engagement with your team and, and y'all have continued to grown and like adapt to all the new opportunities and the things that y'all have today. Yeah. I mean, it's a two way street, you know, I get a lot, I get a lot of the credit for the longevity of our team, but it's, it's, it says as much about them as it does about me. I, I think Nathan, for instance, you know, we met, he was a senior at Houston high school. I had just graduated from UT. So we're, you know, four years apart age wise. And I got introduced to him by an old youth pastor, a friend of mine named Darren Hillis, who said, Hey, there's this kid here at Hope that is a ridiculous musician. You should, you should get him to play with you. And first I was kind of like, Oh, he's just some kid, you know? And then I kind of got in a, in a bind and needed somebody. So I called him and, and we, I went over to his house where his, with his parents were there, you know, and we like kind of jammed out. And I was like, man, this kid is ridiculous. And then he graduated, went to Belmont. I moved to Nashville. So we started playing more on the, you know, on the weekends together, et cetera. And I think what he really wanted, which a lot of musicians don't get is there are a lot of musicians in Nashville that are just hired guns and they don't really get a lot of creative input. I was sort of self-aware enough to know that he had skills and talents that I didn't have and probably wouldn't ever be able to develop to the degree that he already had them even as a 19 to 20 year old. And so I sort of invited him into my creative process, especially in the studio. We didn't really start writing together until probably seven or eight years later, but you know, like I let him pick the band because we'd been playing with a bunch of guys in Memphis who were weekend warriors who were great players, but the sort of level of commitment in, in, in Nashville from musicians is quite a bit higher. It's just because they're really seeing it as like an opportunity for a long-term living. So I let him sort of pick the rest of the band, which is how I met Rich. Rich is just like a loyalist to the nth degree. We just have been able to get along for a long time. And then, you know, then Ellie joined the band and they kind of got to see a lot of life happen. I mean, we had, I remember we used to, when Ellie and I would get in a fight in the van, we couldn't like hide, we couldn't hide from the band. And so I would, and it was kind of this unspoken thing. I would send a text out to the band in the car, <laughs> like headphones on. <laughs> and they would all put their headphones on. She and I would sit in the front seat and work through whatever crap we were like dealing with. And then like I'd give them the thumbs up and they're all like, okay. <laughs> you know, so it wasn't just like this perfect. There was like we had tons of blurred lines between personal and professional, which is what happens in bands because you're traveling together, et cetera, et cetera. So there's just we've created a lot of trust with each other. I've had producers in the past. They're like, well, we should try some different players and just see what it feels like. And I'm like, no, you know, even if that was like the right move for that particular song, which I don't think it would have been because my God, that Rich and Nathan are also both just really, really good. And they're, and they're, they don't just have depth in like one category of music. They have a lot of breadth. I mean, there are times when I come in the green room and they have the, like this, this jazz blue book out and they're like practicing jazz. We don't play jazz, but they're just like working on, all sorts of things, dexterity, tone, scales. Those are things that like I'm not working on. That's because I'm like versatile, super versatile. And so they bring so much to the table and they're, they're good friends. And, and so what I've tried to, to offer is my loyalty just from sort of a, a boss perspective. And we always kind of joke, I don't know how much they like this joke, but it's pretty true. And sort of a benevolent monarchy, you know, (laughs) it's definitely the buck stops with me but I certainly welcome their decisions and, you know, they're right a lot of the time and I'm wrong and I have to be sort of willing to 
acknowledge that. But there's times when I just go, you know what? I hear where you're coming from, but I'm, we're, we're doing it this way. And that's it. And they're like, great. I think they just want to be heard. People want to be heard, you know? It seems like it's easy to either kind of create a fear-based culture or authoritative, you know, where people don't feel comfortable speaking up. And then it's also easy just to kind of be unclear about authority and who the buck stops with. So early on, did you kind of have to set kind of the structure, so to speak, and remind that, hey, I want this to be collaborative and I want buy-in and I want to leverage everyone's skill sets, but at the end of the day, it's my call? Or did that just kind of happen naturally because of who you were? Yeah, it definitely happened organically. I, I mean, I was too young to know how to like, you know, I was a musician who was a history major, so I didn't have any sort of management classes or any finance class. I didn't know anything. I was all learning sort of flying by the seat of my pants. It's all survival. But I did have sort of these innate things of like, okay, if I was Nathan, what are some motivating things? Like A, you need to compensate people well for their time. And in in, in if they're getting asked to do other tours and their other tours are paying more than you, well, you, you might lose out. Now, that's not always the case. If that other tour the main artist is a total authoritarian, you know, dictator who doesn't ever hang out with the band. He's always in his own dressing room and you're playing songs you don't like. So there's sort of like this, these different factors. So I knew that, you know, I can't compete if, you know, if Nathan got asked to go out with some top 10 country act, which he has done many, many, he has been asked to many times. I can't compete with them financially, but if, if I'm, if I can get to like 70 or 80%, but then he's got creative input with me and he has zero creative input with them you know, I'm, I've learned that like, there are other things besides money, but you still have to take good care of people financially. Like you may not be able to be the cream of the crop and pay people like, you know, crazy money, but you can pay them enough and then add other things to it, like creative input, or, you know, we travel what we call cloverleaf touring where we're home every Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And so these guys have wives and kids. And so, other bands go out for like six weeks straight and it's like, these guys want to be home some. So, you know, there's just things that we figured out over time, but I definitely didn't, I never, I never had any sort of notebook. I mean, I had mentors who helped me. I've had a few people that was always in sort of an unofficial capacity. I've never had like a life coach or a business coach. I've just, I, I people always ask me, who do you look up to in the music businesses as far as business people and the way people take care of you? And there's not a lot, the list is pretty short. And so I've had to sort of go outside of music to, to find that, which is, and, and there are some, of my, actually, I would say some of my peers are better at it than some of the people that are older than me, but we, you know, everybody's, you know, you do the best you can, you learn and, and you have, but you have to, yeah, I think being adapt, being adaptable has been a key sort of strength for me throughout all those relational and professional hurdles. Yeah. Early on, I've heard you tell a story about going down to Louisiana, just being so glad you don't have to like text friends anymore to show up to the shows. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm curious about imposter syndrome early on. A, was it ever a struggle, you know, count the numbers, one approval, and then B, when you moved to Nashville and as you've started to just gain more and more publicity, what's that looked like with the temptation or the possibility of imposter syndrome just over the last 17, 18 years? Oh, man. I mean, that's certainly been an ingredient in my life that I've had to sort of fight still, honestly, I mean, you like everything, there's sort of this, this fine line between like the one is that you, the one side is that you can completely believe your own mythology and you're like, no, man, I'm going to, I'm like, I'm a great songwriter. And you know, you start buying it, you know, cause you have to write all these like press bios and then, you know, sometimes they're like sort of one, two dimensional and they, you can kind of start believing these, 
it sort of created stories about yourself. And then, then, then the other side of it is there's total self doubt and man, I'm a total imposter. And I, and I think that figuring out how to sort of center yourself is, is really difficult. And I, I, I find that self doubt is also motivating. Imposter syndrome is also motivating to work harder. Um, I'd say the most difficult season for me after being successful was 2016. I got really sick around Christmas and was in the hospital with meningitis and we had just finished, or we were actually finishing a record called Souvenir. And I was so sick, I couldn't be a part of the mixing and mastering process. So I didn't get to be there to like finalize and approve all the, what you hear on that record. And I had to hand that off to, off to Nathan and Rich because we had a deadline because we already had a tour booked and we had to get the vinyl printed. There's all these like, you know, just professional problems. So got out on that tour, still, still wasn't healthy. Uh, the record wasn't as well received as the previous two records had been. It just, the crowds felt sort of stale. Like I feel like people were, I don't know, just all the, nothing about the whole situation felt right. And all of a sudden I was like, man, it's over. Like that's what I was feeling. And financially we were sort of in, in a more difficult time. The transition from downloads to streaming had sort of happened overnight and there was the cash flow issues were very significant. And so I had all this, this self-doubt of like, man, I'm a phony. Like, I'm not really like, you know, this was all just like this 15 year luck and it's over, you know? <laughs> and, and so I sort of mourned that and grieved that and did some sort of internal work, you know, going to see a counselor and just working through some stuff. And then, and then kind of decided like to change my creative approach and, Historically, I would write a record in like three or four months. I'd write like 20 or 30 songs, record them, put a record out and not write for like another 18 months. And so for Dragons, I wrote twice a week for a year and a half, just changed the work ethic, started co-writing, which your earlier question, I moved to town and everybody told me I needed to be a co-writer. That's the way to do it is to write songs with other people. And I did it about 10 times and hated it. So I went through 12 years of not co-writing at all. And then now I've gone back to it some, I still don't do it a ton, but I do it some, but only with people I kind of trust. And now that I sort of found my, but my voice as an artist, I know what I'm looking for. Now the temptation is more the other direction of like starting to sort of, you know, believe the hype about yourself, you know, yeah. you have all these people that follow you on social media and they're telling you that they love your music and you know, they're coming to your shows and they're cheering and you're coming onto a dark stage and a room full of people screaming and you start to go like, man, like this is like, it can get in your head. And there's this counselor here in Nashville. His name's Al Andrews. And I asked him one time, I said, what's the biggest takeaway of being a counselor to musicians for all these years? And he said, oh, that's easy. The human heart was not built for notoriety. <laughs> you know, just it, it can it can mess you up. And so teetering between those two things is like a, a struggle for, I think, most creative people or honestly for most people in any sort of place in life. But at some point you have to decide, I remember, um, Scott Avett from the Avett brothers is a friend of mine and we were talking about the same thing. And he said, you know, you can only be the best Drew Holcomb out there. You know, he said, I can only be the best Scott Avett. I can't, I'm not going to be Bob Dylan. I'm not going to be somebody else, you know, and those are, I think good words to live by, you know, when you're trying to achieve being somebody else or you've put someone else on a pedestal of what's like the greatest person in the role that you're trying to fill, you're destined for failure because whatever version you have of that person is, is mostly mythology anyways. You know, no one knows what it's like to be somebody until, unless you are that somebody. Right, man. 
I think that's my intro uh, that I'm going to use on the excerpt. <laughs> and what's what's crazy about what you're sharing and open up about, even when you started the process in your early 20s, you had kind of security and affirmation and were kind of comfortable in your own skin. 17, 18 years in, whatever exactly, it's like it's still evolving. As sure. you, you kind of reach new levels, so to speak, continuing to relearn that in different ways. And and one of the things that I was thinking about earlier when you were talking about how you can swing on the pendulum, either just kind of thinking you're too great or self-loathing, but and how a chip on your shoulder can drive you. You know, when you actually either if you're wired this way or you have a relationship with people where the chip on their shoulder did wire them, you see them break and you see yourself break through the people that you trust the most. That's just something else you see with people that even use kind of that, that chip to, to drive and to prove something that it just yeah. doesn't last. No, it doesn't. Yeah. And eventually, yeah, you, you sort of end up empty handed because even if, if you arrive, you're still kind of looking around and going, it's like, what was that? Is that what I've been fighting for the whole time? There's a, there's a great story here in Nashville. There's a guy who, um, really great guitar player. And he was on tour with a friend of mine, another artist named Matt Carney. And um, they were playing Madison square garden as the opening band. And he'd been kind of dreaming about being a musician. He had been on tour for like maybe five years. And he's probably like, I don't know how old he was, but not old 26. And he'd already achieved quite a bit. And so he's on stage playing all of a sudden he said he looked around and he was like, this is totally, I'm not happy at all. <laughs> and he finished the tour, but he told, he told the artist like, like that week, like this is my last tour. I'm getting off the road. I don't want to do music professionally anymore. And he moved to uh, either Jordan. I think he moved to Jordan and learned Arabic and went to law school. And now he's like in public policy work and he speaks like three languages and he's a lawyer. And, you know, it's just sort of all of a sudden you go, well, this is not what I thought it was. And I think that's okay. Sometimes people make this decision. They're going to do this thing. And then they like hell or high water, they're going to do it. And at some point it's okay to go, you know what? I'm just, I don't like this. I don't, I want to do something different. <laughs> if, if you have that, you know, right. ability. So. Well, I think it's cool to think about the honesty and the vulnerability that you've talked about where we're all going to have to do stuff we don't like, or we don't want to do. That's right. just a part of it. But kind of toe that line of knowing kind of why you're doing what you're doing and then grind it out. Or if you know you're doing something, kind of for the wrong reasons, you kind of just work through it to maybe try to get to a place of maybe going to where it might be a better spot. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I've heard your interview with Ellie on Ian Cron's podcast, and you talked a lot about counseling yeah. and y'all were super honest and vulnerable about y'all's relationship. And I also know that you've, one of the things for you about music is how you want to use music as a shot in the arm to provide hope amidst a world of suffering and struggle. So I'm just curious about the work that you've talked about with counseling and the things that you've worked through with Ellie and the things that she shared about with her relationship with you. I'm curious about maybe some things that you might've done differently if there are any within the first, you know, five to 10 years, given it was like a, a scrappy startup. Is there anything that you feel like you really had to work through that you're comfortable sharing that you might have thought differently about how to kind of go through that journey a little bit healthier? Yeah. You know, it's hard, it's hard to sort of money morning quarterback on those sort of things because self-discovery is so much a part of like seeing things over time and being able to look in the rearview mirror and be honest with yourself about, you know, your own problems, your own mistakes, uh, your own sort of pathologies. So I don't know if I would necessarily change anything. 
there are regrets in the sense that I wish that I knew what I know now back then, but I don't know if, if I would know what I know now, had I not been that version of myself and, and changed over time. I mean, marriage, like we talked about in that podcast, the Incron has very much been a, a, a source of great joy, but also great friction and, and, and change for both of us. And I think embracing that we both embraced that pretty early on. I've always been, you know, speaking of the Enneagram, I'm, I'm an eight, some sort of conflict, like direct. And so I've never been like afraid of sort of like doing business with the world and myself, you know, I've always been, I think when I meet a foe or somebody who can really point out something to me that's, that's true and real that, that I need to work on, I'm, I'm pretty willing to, to engage that and, and try to make changes. Now you gotta, you really got to convince me though, you know, it's not really. <laughs> yeah. so I don't know if I would change anything. I would just, I would love to go back and laugh at some of the things and shake my head and go, man, what a fool that 25 year old, 28 year old person was. But, but honestly, my hope is that I do the same thing when I'm 50, looking back at, at this current 38 year old version. Yeah. You know, I, I think even this quarantine time has been a, a, there's been a lot of mirrors around me and I'm like, turn them off, turn them off, <laughs> you know, like too much, too much. I mean, I've, I've realized in this time that I probably a little bit of a workaholic. I just love work. I love, you know, I, I, yeah, I really enjoy my work, but I think I need to, I'm not a very, I'm not very good at resting. I'm not very good at um, solitude. And, you know, I think we're always learning and growing. I think that's the whole how you can begin that journey that uh, with counseling or with reading books or with being on, you know, I'm in a small group with guys, you know, it's not like a Bible study. It's more just like a, how you doing, keeping, keeping it real, keeping up with each other, speaking into each other as dads and as husbands, et cetera. You know, there's just a, an opportunity for vulnerability and communities. You have to invite people into your process in order to grow. I, I think, you know, and that's been a big part of it, both with Ellie and then friends and, and, and even now my kids, you know, one of the things that seems kind of evident through your career is that you and Ellie have learned how to accept change and y'all did early on. And you just sound kind of compassionate towards what you've talked about the years that, you know, you've put in thus far. Yeah, there's regrets. Yeah, there's things I wish I could have done differently. But to some degree, that's a part of the process, which it sounds like that drives kind of more of a presence for now and then also kind of more of a confidence for the future. But it also sounds like early on in y'all's marriage and, you know, with y'all's careers that y'all just y'all have changed and y'all have evolved. And I've historically kind of been a person that maybe was prone to more just being very rigid, having a lot of control and stand locked into something because, you know, the unexpected or the unknown just really concerned me because all I wanted was stability. But it seems yeah. like as y'all have kind of really worked through that and learned that and incorporated that, that's given you, for example, the opportunity to start Moon River. And then hearing yeah. you talk about Moon River and how the first year y'all had so many people there, noise complaints, whatever, you ran out of ice, but it's like kind of this growth mindset to where it was a great idea and it was very successful. And yeah, there was things we didn't know or things we didn't account for, but then you partnered up with that group that manages Bonnaroo and now you've got this sellout massive festival in Chattanooga, but it seems like there's a sense of optimism, but then honesty, but then just kind of being okay with the change. Yeah. Yeah. I think Ellie and I both in our 
personally and, and work life, try to give people a lot of benefit of the doubt, you know, inspire, hopefully inspire people around us to work hard. Like we work hard, but then also, you know, there's this, I mean, you know, pardon my French, but there's this reality that I learned. I think the biggest, like if I could look back and say like, where did I sort of make a change toward letting go would be sort of in the, the late, the late part of my sort of van trailer only touring I just got to this point where you're like, you know what? Shit breaks. <laughs> you know, and it, someone who like you who comes from like a, you know, running a, a lawn business, you know, you're just like, yeah. <laughs> and so it's a funny like mantra, but it's true. You know, when you're running a festival, when you're on the road, when you've got technical things happening and people make mistakes and it's all about like trusting intention and not necessarily like trusting the action. Cause sometimes the action goes wrong. You know, people miss chords, people hit wrong notes, people forget lyrics, audiences get drunk sometimes and make silly shout out mistakes. You know, and every once in a while you got to call that out and, and like, you know, ask somebody like, man, I think you've had too much. Somebody help this guy get out of here. Yeah. You know, but it's not like, oh, you got to ban this guy from the show. And so having that mentality, I think, as it relates to both parenting and, and as it relates to your marriage. But honestly, for a lot of people, I think it's as it relates to yourself. You know, like, hey, man, you're going to break some stuff. You know, you're going to make some mistakes. And that's OK. But if, you, if you're doing that, if you're breaking stuff. You know, if you're making mistakes, it means you're growing, you know, and you're learning and, and you're, you know, willing to be wrong and willing to try again. Trying to do everything perfectly is just such a like exhausting impossibility. And I, I gave up on it a long time ago and it's really helped me a lot. Yeah. And I think from having just to what you've shared, and I think it affects your mindset, especially if you're the one in charge and, you know, thinking about like owning a company or having lots of employees or lots of trucks or it doesn't matter what the company is, what the organization. And this really wasn't that clear to me until I got involved in other businesses. But you start to see that the statistics and the data on just issues are going to happen. And if you're doing a great job, maybe you get nine out of 10. And that's, and, that's, and you're killing it. Right. And, yeah. and then if you're really just going through a tough season and you need to figure something out, maybe, maybe you get six out of 10. And if you're at four out of 10, you know, you're probably out of business. But I think psychologically or from a mindset, if you're the owner and you, you kind of have that rigidity and then you're just putting down or your behavior is like forming a culture where you're just kind of beating the crap out of yourself and the other people that you're with, it makes the, the environment more negative and pessimistic than what it has to be. And I think like even to what you're talking about, if you kind of learn and grow to maybe have more of a mindset, a growth mindset, you run out of ice, you, you might just be a little bit more flexible and you might, yeah. and you're still going to figure it out on the back end. Like what do we need to do to make sure this doesn't happen again, but you're not having a heart attack every single issue. Oh man, I would have had so many heart attacks. <laughs> yeah. But then the thing is, I bet that helped you because being on stage, I mean, if you were, you know, having a heart attack or you were just totally losing it about all these things that were not right, that would affect your performance and how oh, you would connect yeah. with the audience. Cause you have all those things going through your head. Yeah, you do. And sometimes it does. Sometimes you reach a breaking point and you realize like, man, I let, I let the, I let the X factors get the best of me tonight. And I, I did not put on my best show. You know, whether it's like, oh, I forgot lyrics three times, like, you know, what I mean, I'm such an amateur, you know, or whether it's like, man, 
you know, whoever's playing with me tonight just was not on their A game or some person in the crowd that keeps yelling, where's Ellie, even though she hasn't been touring with me for six, <laughs> for six years, you know, it's just like sometimes the, the external stuff, like you, it just gets to you and then you just got to go, man, uh, tonight wasn't my best, you know, but you got another shot at it tomorrow. Yeah. Just where you're at now and, and kind of what you're looking for in the future. I know in five years, you said your goal, one of your goals is to have an RV and take the family for a whole year and hit 52 different locations. But I'm curious about if you'll share anything about how you've developed partnerships, because in Dave Ramsey's podcast, which I'll put that in the notes, you, you talk a lot about the X's and O's of a business. And you talk about the mindset of small business, et cetera, which is really good. But one thing I've noticed, it seems like you have partnerships where there's like a main operator and you've talked about how you need space, you need margin to be creative, but you also, you like diversifying and you like entrepreneurship. So you yeah. got your skin in your skin in the game and a lot of different things, but it sounds like there's kind of a main operating partner in each of the kind of diversified businesses that you have. Can you talk a little bit about how you learn that and how that's helped you? Because then I also think that that's only helping your brand and your band and your image because you have all these other things that you're offering that are yeah. really unique. Yeah. I mean, I, I, a lot of it just goes back to the, 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 when I started working with my manager, Paul and his wife, Sam, we just had a really, um, I, I, I saw them managing another band that I was on tour with. I really, uh, fell in love with them as people, but then also just really respected the way they did business. And so I basically, um, decided over time that I wanted to work with them and they, you know, I, I had to honestly kind of convince them of that because they had a lot of clients at the time. And over the course of that was 2000, 11 or 12. So yeah, eight years ago. And we've just built a, built a, a lot of trust. And I've also just seen how much of a sort of implementers they both are. And it just made sense when I had this idea of doing the festival, I probably could have done it and been like, I'm not, I don't need a partner. I'm going to do it, but it would have failed. Cause it, you know, I, I just a firm believer of skin in the game. And I also needed someone to have some financial sort of skin in the game too, besides me, because it was just too much to take on. And Paul was willing to do that. And we fight hard. We, we get along great. Most of the time he definitely like, you know, gets out of my way on the vision and dreaming side. And then we've got a great team that implements things. And so it's just worked well. And so the record club was like that. And we ended up having to hire people and we ended up selling that company to record label here in town after we grew it to a certain degree. And then the festival, we brought in AC entertainment to sort of take over after doing it three times ourselves and realizing that we were way over our skis so anyways, people say don't go into business with your friends. I just, you know, I just disagree. I think that's more of a reflection on people's sort of how tightly they hold things and they don't want to share. I just, I, I always found that sometimes, you know, one plus one is three with the right people. Yeah. Me having the space to sort of dream and scheme and then also be the face of stuff. I love that. I love being the person that sort of goes and does the press stuff and it's like the face of it. And Paul doesn't care about that. Doesn't need that. I don't necessarily need it either, but I'm good at it. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's just a, you know, finding people that you've been around in other working scenarios where you know how they work. I wouldn't want to go into partnership with somebody I had not done any business with at all. Cause you don't know what they're like in, in that setting. So um, then there's been some other opportunities where I'm in as just a minority investor guy, you know, like this new Sweetens Cove whiskey, you know, basically it was like, 
Andy Roddick is a friend of mine. He's like, hey, you want to be a part of this? Peyton Manning's one of the partners. Da, 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 da. Here are the guys involved and show me their track record. And I'm like, this is like the easiest <laughs> yes of my life. you know. And I don't really have like a lot of say in, in how that business is going to be run. I'm just a very small owner, but you know, I'm just along for the ride for that one. So yeah, you already got your name next to Peyton Manning's in the Tennessee. Yeah, that's right. So I'm, I'm good. Mission accomplished. I've already gotten my money's worth. <laughs> yeah. Can you give an example? You've talked about Paul, and I've heard you talk about sometimes where it can get heated, and like y'all have hung up the phone, and then called each other back, and kind of owned whatever. How have y'all been able to have? a loyalty and a commitment to the relationship and obviously a satisfaction to the work that's being done, but to where you can have that much confrontation, but there still be kind of a commitment to the relationship. Because I think oftentimes it's easy to just where a not having that confrontation, which I know you've already talked about being an Enneagram eight, but B people don't know how to do it. Right. And then when it does happen, it's just like, okay, I'm out. Uh, I think the biggest thing specifically as it relates to partnerships and those things is like, I think if you have a shared end game, you, you, you fight about how you get there, but you still have the same sort of vision for what, what you're headed towards. And so that's typically where it's been for Paul and I, or if we're fighting, we're fighting about, you know, the means to the end, not the end itself, if that makes sense. And so, yeah, there've been times where we just get really heated on the phone and, and uh, one of us says, you know what? you're being unfair right now. You're being, you know, you're being an asshole right now. And I, uh, you want you call me back in an hour, you know what? We need to cool down. Like this is, you, you gotta be honest with yourself. You reach a point where you're like, we're regressing quickly. And then typically in that time frame, you know, the, the person who's probably in the wrong, we have enough history to be able to be honest with ourselves and say, and I think we also both, since our wives are also in the business, they know. And like Sam, you know, Samantha, his wife, who's also one of my managers as well. Like she knows when I, you know, when I'm, she can talk Paul down cause she's not, it's, it's not, I'm not an unknown quantity to her, you know, cause she's, she's had, we've had our own issues as well. And same with Ellie and vice versa. So we're all, there's like, we're all sort of want the same things. And if we don't, we have honest conversations about it, you know? Yeah. What's your end game and what'd you tell him your end game was when you first started working with him? Um, let's see, 2011, I was like, you know, I want to be a successful touring songwriter who can play theaters around the country, pay my band a living wage and be respected amongst my peers and still do it my own way. <laughs> Create Creatively speaking, I didn't want to have to like, you know, become a country writer or country singer or something. So, I mean, we got there pretty quickly, maybe f- probably took four or five years. Yeah. So it was a, it was a pretty clear vision that I had that I felt like I was, I kept hitting a ceiling sort of previous to that relationship. Some of that was because of the creative work wasn't good enough. And I was, you know, I needed to write good light and that record and medicine and work harder on the music side. And some of it was, I was, I needed somebody like Paul and Sam who knew the right people, put me in position to, to find better tours. And, you know, I knew that if you got me on stage in front of the right crowd, I could win them over, but I, I just wouldn't, didn't have access to those crowds at the time. So made a lot of structural changes to the team when they came on board and it really helped set us on that path. What year did you know that that was kind of your North stars, so to speak, or in game? I mean, that's always kind of been, I mean, being a songwriter, like troubadour respected songwriter person was sort of always what I wanted because the people that inspired me to do it were David Gray, Van Morrison, Dylan Springsteen, you know, Patty Griffin, Carol King, people that wrote their own music, performed it the way that they wanted to, 
you know, weren't like beholden to the sort of commercial demands of pop country or, or whatever, you know, genre. So kind of a rebellious streak. A yeah, it's definitely a, a contrarian thing, you know. Nothing against, you know. She thinks my tractor is sexy, but it was just like <laughs> that was not like what I was going for, you know. Right. Just, it, you know, that'd be an Enneagram three, right? Not an right. Enneagram eight. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, what's it now since you've already done that? Uh, I mean, a big part of it is is sustaining it. And creatively, I still feel like my best work is ahead of me. I feel like Dragons was my best album. And I feel like I could continue that trajectory of sort of like getting, continuing to get better at it on the touring front. I think, you know, just practically like less shows that pay better, you know, so like selling more tickets or, or at a higher ticket price so that you can be home more and still make a good living. And I've, I honestly, there's, it's all gravy at this point. I've, I've like gotten to do so many things that I never dreamed would happen. Playing festivals I always wanted to play or touring with people like Willie Nelson and Don Henley. I mean, you know, I've gotten to do things that 22 year old Drew didn't dream were possible. So I hold my dreams pretty loosely these days because I've gotten to live a bunch of them and contentment is kind of, it's probably the new dream. Yeah. I'm sure there's going to be some blend of contentment and then ambition. Yeah. <laughs> True. Early on, I know you talked about playing with Robert Earl Keane, Brian Adams, a lot of really well-known names. And so at that point, you know, you were really starting out from like a business sales kind of perspective or just being aggressive or self-starter, et cetera. What did you do to like really get your name in as many places as you could? How did you treat that time to really get as many kind of swings at it as possible? I basically picked like three or four cities. Knoxville, Birmingham, Memphis, Nashville. And I started playing venues like the high tone. And so, you know, you play the high tone enough, you know, I, I, I got in as an opener there first a couple of times and they give me my own show. And then you get to where you can sell in you know, 150, 200 tickets. Then you kind of have a name in town. And then like the guy who's bringing in Robert O'Keen is like, he wants to sell some extra tickets. He doesn't Robert O'Keen that particular tour didn't have an opener on that. So it was like picking a local. So I was sort of like, genre wise a good fit and so they give me the opening slot you know i take a, a big pay cut compared to what i would make at the high tone to be an opener but i'm playing in front of all robert O'Keefe's fans instead of my own fans and so that's a win so that means the next time i play the high tone maybe i sell an extra 75 tickets of all these people that you know came and saw me open for robert O'Keefe, and so it's really just about the hustle of getting your name in front of the promoters who book the shows you know, that's, it's, it's really that simple, but it's very difficult to do that because then you also have to get, uh, you know, tickets sold and people in the venue. That's how you get that reputation. And so, I mean, yeah, I was just hustling. I had text messages of uh, like a text message list of Birmingham, Memphis, Nashville, Knoxville. And every time I'm playing in Nashville, it's like, Hey, everybody, I'm playing this date. Uh, get your tickets here. Bring some new friends, please, please, please. And then the transition from that to like seeing all Strangers' faces is like probably the most satisfying part of the early days where I really went, okay, this 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 might happen. Last question I got. One of the things I respect about you as an artist and kind of having a platform, and I, you know, I'm just an observer. You're very authentic with your thoughts, with your opinions, with the things that you believe in, and you're not. It doesn't seem like you're really concerned about trying to just make people happy. And I know we've talked about. <laughs> 
authenticity. You should check my Twitter from yesterday. <laughs> I know. I saw it. <laughs> and I re- honestly, I never read comments, but I, I read through them. <laughs> I mean, and this, this is re- doing that kind of prompted this question. But I think it's a great change when you can, regardless of what you believe, A, when you can speak your opinion and be comfortable with that not always being the consensus, but then B, when you have true relationships, your responses are not rooted with anger or ignorance, and you're just not always trying to argue with somebody that might have a different opinion. And I think that can apply to all of us. Can you talk a little bit about how you view your platform and then how you view yourself as a human being, regardless of being a a famous musician and how you continue to kind of live in that freedom and how that influences the things you talk about or how you write your music, a lot of the decisions that you make? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's just definitely still a work in progress, but I feel sort of called as a person who has a platform to speak into things that I feel like need to be said, whether that's, you know, trying to get people to donate money to IJM and help stop slavery in the world, or whether it's to, you know, speak up on behalf of my friends that are people of color, or whether it's to just say, hey, I love this band, you should check it out. I mean, I just want to be the the most honest version of myself that I can be. I still have to sort of edit myself like you do, but I do that. You do that with any relationship. So I have this relationship with my fans. I don't say everything I think to my wife and kids. I have to sort of go, okay, where's that coming from? Is that an important thing to say? Is it worth saying? Is it true? You know, and sometimes you you do a good job and sometimes you don't. And that's true on social media, et cetera, as well. But I've just found that what people want is they want people, they want their people, they're fans of, well, this isn't always true, but I found that my fans want an honest expression they want vulnerability and they want honesty. And, you know, so you just do the best you can. Some people th- think, oh, leave your family out of it. And, you know, Ellie and I are like, well, our family is a big part of our life. So we're going to post videos of our kids dancing in the kitchen. And, you know, we've done things to keep to make sure that our kids are protected from idiots. And but yeah, I mean, it's a we're making decisions weekly and daily about how, what we say, what we do, what we put our influence in, where we, you know, we try to raise a lot of money for different things and we're involved in a lot of different things. But you kind of just you know, I'm a very instinctual person, very gut feeler thinker as far as like what, you know, I just kind of have to trust myself. And sometimes it, I, I make mistakes, but in general, that's worked well for me. And especially as it comes to my songwriting, like when I trust my gut and I write the song that I want to write from like the deep spot, those are the ones that people respond to the most. And when I try to get cute and creative and try to like be witty, those are the ones people are kind of like, I don't care about that song. So I've taken that same philosophy to my public persona, if you will. That's the great thing about social media is like no one's forcing anybody to follow anybody. No one, no one has to watch videos of me and my kids singing in the kitchen. No one has to read my political point of view on Twitter, but they're welcome to, you know, and um, I try not to push anything down people's throat. I mean, you know, if you go back and look at something like my Twitter, I probably make, you know, one out of 20 comments on there is probably something that's, you know, controversial, but, that's, you know, that's a pretty good, pretty good ratio considering what, what you probably feel about things is more often than that, you know, but I have group texts with my buddies for things like that, or that sit on the couch with my wife and talk about things and how we can be a part of a, I want to be sort of a solutions driven person, not just a, a diagnostic hater. I don't know. It, it kind of goes back to that. I don't know how to be anybody else and I'm, and I'm a continual work in progress. So I'm changing the version of, of me that you hear or see 
hopefully that, you know, three years ago is different than when you hear now, whether it's through the music or, or just in an interview like this, like I want to be, I want to be growing to use the word you used earlier. So, yeah, man, that's awesome, man. I love talking to you and can't wait for this to get out and just thank you for making time for me this morning. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I got to go do a, uh, a show right now on zoom for a, a venue in London. So I got a boogie. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned at least one thing today that you can apply to your own life. If you like the show, please make sure and leave a review and be sure to tune in each week as I'll be releasing a new episode. Hope you have a great day.